I was fortunate enough to grow up living 15 minutes from my grandparents. Grandparents are those wonderful people uh, who, when you're kids that will give you everything that your parents don't want you to have. I thought that was a funny line. <laughs> Maybe it's too true. <laughs> my grandparents' car went to McDonald's more often than my parents' car did. My grandparents' car went to Blockbuster. Remember Blockbuster? That place was awesome, uh, more than my parents' car did. My grandparents' pantry had more candy in it than my parents' pantry did, and my grandparents were much more willing to reach into their pantry to get candy for me than my parents were. And my grandparents' freezer always had, always had, mint chocolate chip ice cream. The green kind. Don't come at me with some white mint chocolate chip and say it's mint. <laughs> My granny passed away when I was a junior in high school. After that, my granddad started coming over a few times a week to our house. And as the years went on, he started coming over more nights. At a certain point when I was in college, he, had he came over every night for dinner. And it was great. My mom and my dad, my little brother, Myself, when I was home during breaks, got to spend a lot of time with him in the last couple years before he passed. When he was alive, we encountered my granddad a lot. We saw him daily. We could talk to him. We could hear his stories. I told y'all a couple weeks ago that he won a Pulitzer Prize, that he interviewed Helen Keller and covered the Apollo space shuttle missions. So he had a lot of awesome stories. When he died, his loss was pronounced. We felt it every night when we looked at an empty chair, when we looked at his chair. We talked about him often in the days and weeks and months after he passed. We still talk about him often. We talk about his life. We talk about his personality. We tell stories like the time he hit a bridge worker with a golf ball in the rear end. He didn't throw the ball either. He hit it with his driver. The man couldn't find the fairway with 10 shots, but you put a bridge worker off to the side and he's gonna hit him every time. We talked about how he would respond to the news. And in some ways, talking about him, talking about how he would respond to things, how he would remember things, telling his stories, we encountered him even though he died. In some ways, some part of him was still with us was still made present to us, was still here. Here at Spirit and Life, we talk about encountering Jesus. Now, encountering Jesus is not like encountering my granddad, because where I have faith that my granddad has been raised to eternal life with Jesus Christ, stories of encounters of the risen Christ are categorically different from talking about remembering a loved one. But yet, when we talk about encountering Jesus Christ, we are still talking about encountering someone who is not physically present to us. So it does beg the question, how do we do that? How do we encounter Jesus who is not physically present to us? This morning, we're going to look at a story of how two followers of Christ encountered Jesus after his death. This comes from Luke chapter 24. Verses 13 to 35. We were in Luke chapter 24 last week, but the end of it, so now we're going to the beginning of it um, because time makes sense. 
Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, that is, the passion of Jesus Christ. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in, in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all, the pro all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Now I know what you're thinking. Less than a month ago, it was Christmas. And now here we have an Easter story. I am determined to beat Walmart to the pre-Easter craze. <laughs> this is one of the most fully developed, polished, and detailed story of Jesus' resurrection in the Gospels. And it begins like a Black Mirror episode. There are these two guys walking down a road. We are told the road would lead to Emmaus, which is seven miles outside of Jerusalem. Now is when I tell you about the town of Emmaus. See, here we go. Um, we don't really know what this refers to. Sorry. There was a town called Emmaus Nicopolis, which fits nicely, you know, given that it's named Emmaus, but that was nearly 20 miles outside of Jerusalem, so probably not. Other than that, there are three towns that it likely might have been, none of whose names I can pronounce. Perhaps the best thing we can say of Emmaus is what Frederick Bruner, no, Frederick Buchner said 
I can't pronounce German, let alone some of these town names, uh, saying that Emmaus is the place we go to in order to escape. A bar, a movie, wherever it is, we throw up our hands and say, it makes no difference anyway. Emmaus is whatever we do or wherever we go to make ourselves forget that the world holds nothing sacred, that even the wisest and bravest and loveliest decay and die, that even the noblest ideas that men have had, ideas about love and freedom and justice, have always in time been twisted out of shape by selfish men for selfish ends. Emmaus is where we go when we are down, when we are low. These two men had just experienced the death of their teacher, the death of their rabbi, the death of their movement. They had thought that Jesus had come into Jerusalem to break the wheel that had crushed so many of their friends, so many of their family and fellow Israelites. Jesus was supposed to overthrow Rome. Jesus was supposed to reform the temple. Jesus was supposed to establish a rule of peace and prosperity for Israel. The decisive time had come when God was moving and acting and fulfilling. And then it ended. Jesus was arrested, tried, convicted, tortured, and executed. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. Their hopes and dreams were dashed. There's a song in Les Mis that's truly heartbreaking. There's many songs in Les Mis that are truly heartbreaking, but one in particular called Empty Chairs at Empty Tables. It begins, there's a grief that can't be spoken. There's a pain goes on and on. Empty chairs at empty tables. Now my friends are dead and gone. Here they talked of revolution. Here it was they lit the flame. Here they sang about tomorrow. And tomorrow never came. That is how these men walked to Emmaus. Defeated. Dejected. They're on a, for, uh, they're on a road to forget what they had just experienced and try to find some way to move on. We walk our own roads of Emmaus all the time, don't we? We have our own Emmauses. We have our places we go when we feel like a failure, whether at our jobs, in our families, in life. We have our own places we go when we are overwhelmed and underappreciated. We have our own places we go when we feel lost and lonely. We have our own places we go when we just don't know what else to do. One thing that I find really interesting about this story is that most of the stories we have of disciples uh, after the crucifixion begin with them remaining together in a group, or at least a large group of them being together. They're locked in an upper room. They're going fishing. Whatever it is, they're together. A group of women walk to the tomb. But these two men are not with a group. This story is about two men on their own. I wonder how much their lack of relationship drives them to Emmaus. I wonder how much our lack of relationship, our lack of a group of caring people, drives us to our Emmaus. Then they are joined by a third traveling companion. 
and he asks what they are talking about. And Cleopas says to Jesus, are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened here? Which is such dramatic irony. I love it. Cleopas enlightens Jesus on the things that happened to Jesus that took place, uh, including women going to a tomb looking for Jesus, but they didn't find Jesus because Jesus was right there with them on the road to Emmaus. Then Jesus begins to blow their minds by going through Moses and the prophets and telling the huge story that God has written throughout history that led to the decisive events that took place in Jerusalem. They wind up sharing a meal in Emmaus during which Jesus breaks bread and they realize that their traveling companion is not just some random dude but is in fact Jesus risen from the dead. And when Jesus left them, they realized that their hearts were burning on the road as he had opened their eyes to scripture. Then they returned to Jerusalem, rejoined the other disciples, and reported what they had seen and experienced. So what does this story mean for our lives? I think there are a number of takeaways for us. The first takeaway is that Jesus meets us on the road to Emmaus. When we are going to the places where we go when hope seems foolish, when we are lonely, when we are overwhelmed, Jesus meets us there. Jesus goes there with us. The story says they, they arrived at Emmaus, Cleopas and his friend, uh, and they wanted to stop, and Jesus was going to keep on going. But when asked, Jesus stopped with them. Even in our moments of deepest darkness, despair, loneliness, and gloom, there isn't any place we can go that Jesus won't go with us. When we are lost, when we feel forsaken, when we feel like there's nowhere to turn, Jesus meets us there. Jesus is always there. Jesus is always with us. And wherever we go to cope with our feelings of hopelessness, our sadness, our grief, Jesus goes with us. Jesus wants us to keep moving forward with him. Jesus wants to keep going on towards healing with him. But Jesus will also stop with us. Jesus will also stay with us. Jesus will also wallow with us. We have friends and we have family who will be there to support us in our moments of greatest need. But perhaps we fear that there might be places we can go where our friends or our family won't go with us. There is no place, there is no place we can go that Jesus will not go with us. The second takeaway for us is the interplay between encounter with Jesus, the opening of scripture and communion. These are the three activities that happen while these two men are with Jesus. Jesus opens the scriptures to them. Jesus breaks bread, which uh, is about eating a meal together, but also about communion. Uh, and the people realize that they are in the presence of Christ. All of this leads to their healing. All of this leads to them leaving their place of despair. All of this leads to their salvation from the real life things from which they needed saving. Jesus agrees to meet us in the means of grace. Jesus agrees to meet us in worship. Jesus agrees to meet us in scripture. Jesus agrees to meet us in prayer. Jesus agrees to meet us in service. Jesus agrees to meet us in these places if we will but seek him there. If we are lost, if we are lonely, if we need healing, wholeness, grace, and mercy, all of that begins with seeking Jesus in the places that he has promised to meet us. 
But the biggest takeaway from this story is what comes at the very end. Cleopas and his friend had left Jerusalem. They had left the company of the other disciples to go and grieve alone. They were running away from connection with others and shared life together. They encounter Jesus on the road, and what do they do? They return to Jerusalem. They return to the other disciples. They return to their small group. Part of how we process the ways that we have encountered Christ in the world is through small groups. Through meeting together with other people, other Christians, praying together, studying the Bible together, talking about how our faith impacts our life together, sharing life together. We can hear about how others have encountered Christ, how others are still seeing Christ in, at work in our world today. We can think about where God is calling us, how God is leading us, how God is moving in our lives. We can figure out together what this whole life of faith is all about. When we meet in small groups, we can hold each other accountable. And I don't mean to play gotcha with each other. But we can ask, how is it with your soul? Are you engaging in the means of grace? Are you seeking out Jesus in scripture and in prayer? For a while, I was a runner. I hope to be again one day soon. Oftentimes, runners will have a running buddy. Someone to train with, someone to talk about training with, someone to race with. And oftentimes, you need a running buddy to keep you accountable. In a five-year stretch, I ran a marathon and 10 half marathons. I was in phenomenal shape. And because I was in such phenomenal shape, I thought I could let my training slide a bit. And I could. For a while, I could still run pretty good distances. I was still in decent shape. And if I had a longer race coming up, a couple weeks of decent training would get me back in shape enough to run that race. Now I find myself barely able to run more than a couple miles. This same thing can be true in our spiritual lives. If we don't have someone or someone's to keep us accountable, we can begin to slide. And we won't notice it right away. Backsliding is a little bit insidious like that. For a while, we'll be fine. And for a while, when we don't feel fine, Dipping our toe back in will be just enough. Adding a couple days of prayer in, reading my Bible a little bit, will be enough to get, us, to get us back to being okay. But eventually, you get to the point where you're basically starting over from scratch. And that's a painful process. That's hard. Accountability keeps us from doing that. It keeps us moving forward even when we feel like we're fine. Because some of these things aren't about for when we're fine. They're about for when we're not fine. But we got to keep in shape when we're fine to make sure that we have what we need when we're not fine. At the heart of this is a simple truth. Our connection with God and our connection with others have a symbiotic relationship. We need both. And the two work together. Cleopas and his friend had lost their connection to God, or at least their connection to Jesus. So they forsake their connection to the disciples. When their connection to Jesus is restored, 
they resume their connection to others. Small groups at Spirit and Life attempt to connect you with God and connect you with other people because those relationships work together. Your connection with God should drive you to connect with others. And your connection with other people should fuel your relationship with God. That's why we're so big on small groups here. And I want to urge you to try them out. We have two new small groups starting today. One on parenting and one on 1 John. Try them out. We have small groups that meet throughout the week that are always willing to take on new members. One meets at Carolyn May's house. Tuesday night with a new study at Deborah Wright's house. Deborah's right here if you want to know where she lives. I don't need to tell you all. Um, and we have a, a men's group, uh, Sleeping Giants, that meets at Dominic's house uh, on Thursday nights. And they have just recently started a new study on, that John is helping lead on predestination and free will. Uh, so if you show up wait, late a couple weeks, it's okay. It was foreknown that you would show up a couple weeks late. <laughs> It's a bad predestination joke. <laughs> They're always willing to bring in new people. Try it. Give it a try. Because we need to connect with God regularly. And we need to connect with other people regularly. And we need these two relationships to work together to bring about our healing, wholeness, and flourishing. 